This morning is February 6th, uh, it's 2011. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to John 3. Uh, this morning I wanted to throw off the constraints of notes or an order of service or anything else and just speak to you about some things that were on my heart. I hope that's okay with you. Uh, if it's not, nothing's going to change. I'm still going to do exactly what God told me to do. But you'll just be unhappy. And I would rather you be happy than unhappy. So, amen. Let's get happy about what God is doing in here. Amen. So, I think we're going to call this message Nehushtan. Uh, Nehushtan is a Hebrew word. I'll tell you more about that later. It's an unusual Hebrew word. It's probably something that you have not heard of before. And yet it is familiar in every life in here. Are you with me in John 3? Yes. yes. Okay, in John 3 it says... Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Wow, that's quite a mouthful right there. A member of the Pharisees. Now when we say Pharisee, if you look it up in an English dictionary, you get a really perverted sense of what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee today is a word that is almost synonymous with the word hypocrite. This was not true in the first century. 2,000 years of perspective can change the way you view something. Yeah? How about science? If we talk about uh, uh, creation myths in 500 B.C., are they different than what people think of as creation today? Of course. So when you say creation, it depends on the audience that you're speaking to as to what it meant. Well, to this audience, when we're speaking of a Pharisee, in Hebrew, this is derived from the words... To separate. They were men who primarily were rabbis in local synagogues. Josephus says there was about 3,000 of them in Jesus' day who were actual, <laughs> you forgive this, the jargon, card-carrying Pharisees. <laughs> Having said that, there were many, many people that identified with the movement. The idea was that the Sadducees, this religious aristocracy who inherited their positions based on their birthright, had... Uh, made the Word of God too liberal. Uh, many of the Sadducees did not believe in demons, did not believe in angels, did not believe in a literal resurrection, did not believe in the 39 books of the Older Testament. They only accepted the first five. The Pharisees wanted to separate from that. They wanted to be distinct from it. And not just that, they wanted to separate from the common people who didn't care. They wanted to be a distinct, called-out group of people. Can you relate to that? Yes. Of course. Of course you can. Uh, anybody in here got a fence at their house? Yes. Why do you have a fence? Boundaries. You want a fence there so that things that shouldn't come in don't come in. And maybe some things that you don't want to run away, not to run away, right? Does anybody have a dog pen within a fence? No, you people are not dog people, huh? John does. John has a fence within a fence. Why do you have that? Because inside the boundary of the room, you also want to further confine to protect or whatever the, the reason may be. This process of putting fences around fences started off as a holy desire. If the people of God should not commit adultery, and I think we can all say amen to that, amen. then let's not even consider it in our thoughts. That's offense, right? That's offense that Jesus told us to have. To prevent us from doing a bad thing, let's back up from that bad thing and draw the line here. But then we back up from that and draw a line here, and back up from that and draw another line here, and pretty soon we get to something that says, oh, I don't know, since we can't cook a young goat in his mother's milk, don't even put dairy and meat anywhere near each other in the kitchen. Okay, If you don't know what I'm talking about, that is a dietary law. This is the way that most Jews keep kosher. It's called glat kosher. And the idea came from we don't even want to get close to doing something that's wrong, so let's back up from it. One guy says, we could back up even further than that. No, man, we, we, we really could back up a little further than that. And it was all trying to get to the center of what was orthodoxy, what was a right way to live. Is that a bad desire? No. no, we do it all of the time. How many of you believe 
that there is nothing inherently sinful about alcohol, and yet you would rather not have anything to do with it personally. That's a bunch of people in this room. I understand that. Trust me, I did That's offense. How many don't even want to be in the same room with it? That's yet another offense. How many don't want to associate with people that do? That's yet another offense. At some point, the things that we put in our life to protect us actually can restrict us. The party of the Pharisees we know of for silly restrictions, but it started off as a desire simply to please God and to separate. Can you relate to that? Okay, so Pharisees not a bad word. In fact, these were the conservative evangelicals of their day. Okay, can you relate to that now? Okay, these were the guys who wanted to get every word of the Bible right and disdained the other teachers who were not doing that. Now, let's graduate that to a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is the Sanhedrin. It was comprised of 70 or 72 members. What a distinct group. That's a little bit like the United States congressman, isn't it? Despite the entire population, we only have a certain number of representatives for our democracy. Well, there were a certain number of representatives in Israel for their theocracy, not democracy. They represented God. This comes from Ruel or Jethro's discussion with Moses. And they were capable men. They were men who were supposed to render judgments and judge the nation. This is one of those men. Now, I've talked to some of you about the three Jewish schools. Suffice it to say that this guy had to have all 39 books memorized. Had to. He had to not only know that, but he also had to know, beyond any question or doubt, what all the major rabbis through history taught about those 39 books. That's pretty amazing. He had a seriously disciplined, moral, rigid life. Seriously. Now, let's examine his discussion with Jesus. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Rabbi, who knows? We know. The feeling among the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees, either party that we may be speaking of, had a general sense that Jesus must have come from God. The question is not, do people know Jesus is of God? Muslims say He is. The Jehovah's Witness that came here before our service knew that He was. Mormons know that He is. The question is, what do you do with that knowledge? The question is not, can we uh, say that there is one God? Even the demons believe that in Shudder. The question is not, do we acknowledge Jesus is of God? The question is, what do we do about that? He came at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How did Jesus begin his conversation with Nicodemus? The truth. When confronted with the truth, there is a pattern that the people of God must go through. If you knew this ahead of time, would it be a revelation? Not at all, right? He said, I know that you've come from God. Well, that's about where everybody is. We know Jesus is good. We know God is good. Uh, 80% of our nation claims to be a Christian. We have this general knowledge. But the Gospel will confront you with specific truth. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's when we're confronted with revelation truth that we have a choice to make. God will put you in situation after situation where you are confronted with some revelatory truth that you have the chance to be obedient to or disobedient to. How many of you remember when you found out that there was a baptism in the Holy Ghost? I mean, you were hanging out in Acts 19. You, you thought everything was wonderful about Jesus for a follower, but you hadn't even heard there was a Holy Ghost. I mean, you were... I'm not going to name names. I remember what that day was like. Do you remember that it's a little bit daring? You're like, but, but wait a minute. If I go that route, then I might be excluded from the group I'm already in. 
Did anybody in here get the Life Photo Fellowship when you got a revelation about Jesus that somebody else didn't have? Yes. So you can begin to relate to the position Nicodemus is in. He's already achieved everything that there is to achieve in the Judaism of his day. And now he's being told something else is required of him. Don't we all really kind of look for a place where we can say this? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I've done that. Yeah. Are, are you born again? Well, uh, in 1987, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. Come on, man. It's not that hard of a question. No. How about are you passionate and in love with Jesus? See, we're always looking for a place to coast. And the Holy Ghost will not let you coast. He will confront you with truth regularly. Could it be offensive to tell a grown man for the first time in human history, you must start all over again like a baby? Because make no mistake about it, when we call ourselves born-again Christians, that's what we're saying. I started all over again just like a wee little baby. We don't talk about it like that. Now we have exalted theological terms. But imagine that you're just a regular guy that you came and flattered the teacher and told him great things and he looked at you and said, you need to be a little baby again. How would you feel about that? What if I visit your house tonight and while we're talking and you're telling me how good you're doing in the Lord, I looked at you and said, you are a novice with no hope of success in your current direction. You really have to change everything about your life just like a child that needs their diapers changed. You probably didn't invite me back. Huh? <laughs> Some of you would, and I know that. This is a difficult thing to hear. Can you appreciate that? He's used to being revered. He's used to people looking to him for guidance. And he's being told he has to start all over again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. What an interesting question. Is it the first time in history that somebody has argued even with themselves over whether or not Jesus' words were to be taken literally or whether it was representative of something spiritually? I mean, one-fifth of the world's population takes the phrase, this is my body, to mean some lesser form of cannibalism. But nobody seems to look for a doorknob on Jesus' chest when he says, I am the way. So can you uh, appreciate the idea that if you're hearing this for the first time, it might be difficult to know exactly what Jesus was talking about? Or have our, has our thoughts become so jaded about how stupid Nicodemus was and how smart we are through 2,000 years of really bad preaching? <laughs> We have a fine way of excusing ourselves from these scenarios, don't we? The last thing that you learn from God. I mean, the last thing that you can say, definitively, my mind absolutely changed on this subject. How long ago was it? How difficult was it for it to happen? How many times did God have to revisit the issue with you? How many people from various backgrounds and different ways did He have to speak to you about it? It is very difficult to get revelation truth to us because we're pretty darn stubborn as a human race. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. I find it funny that commentaries have written volumes on what this means. I think he explains it in the next verse. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. I believe that the water birth he speaks of is a natural birth when a woman's water breaks and the spiritual birth is something supernatural that happens inside a believer when faith is being expressed by you. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, look at this carefully, you, do you have a footnote there? You is plural. How do you say you plurally in the South? Y'all! Do not be surprised at my saying, y'all must be born again. Not only now is Jesus saying that this exalted religious leader who was revered everywhere he went needed to start again like a baby. What is Jesus actually saying? Everybody in your grouping, whether we're talking about the Sanhedrin or we're talking about the Pharisees, must be born again. There are no exceptions for this. 
I spent a significant amount of time in the Lutheran church, and they don't like the phrase, born again. They consider it forcing your theology upon them. I didn't say, you must be born again. Jesus did. And it was plural when He said it. Y'all must be born again. Doesn't that have a certain ring to it? Hey, try this one out for you, right? You ready? Shalom, y'all. <laughs> there is a certain relationship between Biblical Hebrew and Southern English. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because I butcher both. Y'all must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Keep your finger here and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. My mom and dad had a friend in Baton Rouge who was uh, a preacher. You're going to be in the 11th chapter. He said, Ecclesiasticus. <laughs> Turn to the book of Ecclesiasticus. There. 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 Look at verse 5. As you do not know the path of the wind, or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Do you see a relationship between what Jesus told Nicodemus and what was written in the book of Ecclesiastes? Yes. Weren't they speaking about natural birth and spiritual birth? Didn't Jesus relate it to understanding the path of the wind? Even we can make a connection between those two things, right? Well, how much more so if it was not the first time you heard that was in the book of Ecclesiastes, if in fact you had had that book memorized before your 13th birthday? What would you be listening and understanding Jesus to be saying? You need to start over like a little baby. Well, Jesus, I don't understand what you mean. Are you literally saying I need to go find Mom and see if there's a way to uh, incubate me again? Is, is that what you're saying? And Jesus quotes a Scripture that the man would have known since he was 13 years old and said the same way you can't understand how a baby is formed in the mother's womb, you are not capable of understanding God's work in your present condition. Yeah. Could that be insulting? Yes. How many people leave right there? I don't want to finish all of Nicodemus' life, but I would like to tell you that there's a clear pattern. In John 3, we see that he's showing interest in Jesus. By John 7, 45 through 52, he's defending Jesus. His comrades want to uh, attack Jesus. And he says, look, man, uh, can we do that without first? I mean, our law doesn't condemn a man without first hearing everything he has to say. By the end of Jesus' life, when He's buried, Nicodemus is associated with Him in His death. So Nicodemus didn't stay here. But I want to ask you, what is it that is preventing him from understanding? Something is required of anyone who ever wants to learn of God. And Jesus is getting at the core of it in the way He's talking to him. Pride has to be removed. It is the circumcision of a heart. You have to be in a position that is humble. A position that says... You know, and I don't know. Please help me. It's an interesting thing. The man that was in our church ten minutes before the service started asked a profound question. Mandy came and said, there's a man in the hallway who wants to know who Jesus is. What a profound question, right? Yeah. He gave me nine minutes to explain it. Nine. I got a chance to look at him and say, hey, friend, we love you. If you hang out here, you'll either feel the presence of God or you will not feel the presence of God. If you do, sit and talk. If you don't, why would you want to hear from us? So I really don't have time to do that. So, so let me get this straight. You want to know who Jesus is, but you're only willing to invest ten minutes in that answer? Of course he felt uncomfortable. How much time are you devoting to finding out what the will of God is? How much thought, how much prayer, how much searching the Scripture... Are we pretty sure that we're just kind of okay like we are? See, my interaction with Jesus drives me to one conclusion. The conclusion that it drives me to over and over and over again is I am in a constant place of needing to be renovated. Yeah. Are you one of those people that every time you get your furniture just where it should be in the house, you get it all painted just like you wanted, you move? And if you don't move, something happens and you have to change the kind of floors. You have to I mean there's always a building project going on. There is always something going on. 
you're just in touch with our true nature. Our true nature is a constant examination going, you know, this was pretty good when I built it, but now that I finished the building project, I see that uh, it needs improvement. Let's do it again. But the problem is we don't really want to have to do it again because it was hard the first time. Okay? I want to stay in this building for two very profound reasons. One of them is I feel very cold to this neighborhood. Okay? I feel like Jesus gave us this building. Can you say amen to that? Amen. How many prophecies have there been about us staying in this building? Not, not staying. Inheriting this place. Getting the whole square, right? Okay, so my heart is set there. Having said that, does Jesus owe that to us? And what is the other reason we want to stay in the building? Because it was hard. It was hard to do this the first time. Do you really want to do it again? This is where we find ourselves in Christianity all of the time. It was hard to get what I already have. Are you really saying it's incomplete and I need more? Let me give you that profound, direct answer. Yes. Yes, that's exactly what we are saying. There is never a place to rest. Your righteousness is but filthy rags. How do you get credited righteousness? You trust. How do you know that you trust? You do that which you do not want to do. That's how you know that you're trusting. Not trust if He's only telling you to do things you want to do. Look at, look at Nicodemus' answer. How can this be, Nicodemus asked? Look at Jesus' answer. You were Israel's teacher. How painful was that to hear? He's just insulted Nicodemus three times. Three times. He insulted him when he said he must be born again. He insulted him when he had a reference that rabbis call stringing pearls, reference to uh, Ecclesiastes. And now, he says, really? You're the teacher of Israel? I mean, this is the best you'll have? Like saying, how sad? Can you imagine that we take the finest theologians of our day, right? You can argue about who those are. We put them on a stage, and then somebody comes in without any academic training. Looks at one of them and goes, really? You're the best that this nation has to offer? <laughs> I'm sorry. How did you feel? Is that belittling? It is. This is the position which all men must receive from God. That's why it's called being born again. How much pride does a baby have? No. In fact, how painful is it when as an adult you have to do things like a baby? I mean, anybody in here been in the hospital? Yeah, it's a pretty horrible experience. Somebody else has to change you. Somebody else has to help clean you. All of those things, right? In fact, that's probably something that uh, outweighs your concern about the actual surgery, is that you don't like to be dependent on anyone. The kingdom requires you to be in a position of being dependent upon God. Pastor Piero is calling that putting the fruit back on the tree. If taking the fruit, if when Eve took the fruit, what it is symbolizing is her right to choose. What we are doing is putting that back on the tree and saying, Lord, I'm like a baby again and I need you to lead me. Come on. You know when that's really good? When we actually do it. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I mean, that's like taking it to a whole new level. He's not just questioning whether or not he is Israel's teacher. Of course he knows he is. Now he's saying, and you don't get the basics, dude? Really? <laughs> Would God do that to you? Apparently so. He just did. Well, it's because Nicodemus was a bad man. Really? Really? Why? Because he didn't know the Word? Well, he did. Why? Because he didn't live a separated life? No, he did. So why is he doing this for Nicodemus? Help him grow. Because it's for his benefit. How is he going to teach you, Satan? How? If he is appearing to you at the foot of your bed saying, Michael, Michael, you are my finest creation. I just wake up each day, Michael, to look to see what you're going to do. I love you, Mike. You're awesome. The best. You're probably seeing something that's not God. Okay. Interaction with the brightest light that the world has ever known will constantly reveal something in you. Deficit that needs to be filled by Him. 
So the walk of a mature Christian is odd. It's a paradox. The mature Christian is more in touch with their flaws than they've ever been before in their life. And yet, they're not overcome by them because they see God's hand at work in it just like a parent helping a baby. See, these verses are not so mystical, are they? They're actually very, very practical. You were Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people... What do you mean, you people? <laughs> what does he mean, you people? You Jews? No, he's a Jew. The apostles are Jews. What does he mean, you people? The word. Maybe it's the learned. Maybe it's the Pharisees. Maybe it's the Sanhedrin. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's anybody that has trouble humbling themselves. What do you mean, you people? <laughs> it is anybody who would have trouble being told. You need to be like a baby. You can't even understand this. And you're an adult. Are you kidding? Look, let's do a math problem. How about ABCs? I know what I'm spelling B. <laughs> Who would not have a problem hearing that? You people. I would say you people is us. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? You know how for sure we know that the church as a whole is full of unbelief. And I don't just mean the American church. I mean this church. Me. Do you know how we know that? Because he said... These signs shall follow those who believe. <laughs> yeah. Look, kids, Big Ben. Really? There's no, there's no sign that says it's Big Ben. And there's no giant clock. How do we know it's Big Ben? Well, because our theologians told us so. Actually, you know, Big Ben has ceased to be. It's not there anymore. You just kind of imagine it when you're in this area. <laughs> when you believe, certain things happen. Now, I'm not telling you it's mathematical precision. I'm not telling you God is a genie, but it does look like something. How many people are confident that their life is looking like the book of Acts? It can. It should. It should be increasing regularly, but it requires us to do something that you people have trouble doing. Just like me. Humbling ourselves and willing to go, okay, Lord, what would you like done differently? And we like to resort to things, and I did this this morning. I don't know, whatever he wants, I'll do. Well, isn't that nice? Don't you have an obligation to find out what pleases the Lord? Yes. yes. To say, oh, well, whatever he wants, I'll do. It's like another way of saying, we don't know what he wants, and so we'll just continue doing what we're doing. Isn't it? It, it's just a tool to procrastinate. It's like when one spouse is there to make a purchase and they feel uncomfortable and they say, let me check with my spouse. Really, why'd you come without You people. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus was in a unique position. His unique position was a perfect understanding of the Father and a perfect representation of that understanding. And now He is standing there perfectly presenting it to Nicodemus in a perfectly unacceptable way. <laughs> to Nicodemus. Either He is Lord and we do exactly what He says when He says to do it, or you are Lord and He is your genie. This is the dilemma that we're in. Because we say, I will serve you, Lord, if you give me back seven times what I give. I will serve you, Lord, as long as serving you means a life that looks like the one that I think I want. I will serve you, Lord, as long as you do what I want. This is not born again, no matter what your sinner's prayer was. I love the way that Nathan Smalley said, you show me the sinner's prayer in your Bible and I will eat your Bible. The idea that you come here in 30 seconds and recite something not quite even found in the words. And that's okay, you're good to go. When people have had an experience with God, it usually comes from having been greatly humbled in the review of their life. Seeing a legacy that is death and wanting something dramatically different. 
and like a child that needs to be clothed and fed, saying, Lord, I need your help. And whatever you give me to wear is what I will wear. Whatever you give me to eat is what I'll eat. Now, I want you to think about that in its basic terms. Whatever you give me to wear, I will wear. Whatever you give me to eat, I will eat. Wherever you take me is where I'll go. Does that really define the Christian life? Well, it defines the authentically Christian life. So then let's ask ourselves, how often are you in places that He sent you, but you would not have gone unless He did? See, we all say things like, as many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, right? And we quote those scriptures. But where is the evidence of it in our lives? How do you know whether you were being led by Him or you're trying to lead Him where you want to go? Because i, I got to tell you, first-hand experience, knowledge after knowledge of this, People leave and go do all kinds of things that I know good and well are not God, but they don't say that. What do they say? I'm where God wants me. Really? Must be nice to be able to give Him commands like that. I thought two weeks ago you said that God told you you were in this church. Well, you know, there was no opening on the worship team. So God changed His mind. Well, it was before you called attention to that area of my life, and now I don't like you or that place. So God changed his mind. Well, it was before I realized that being there would force change in my life. So God changed his mind. It's before I knew that we would really have to be actually serious about the word and do it, not just talk about it. So God changed his mind. Of course, nobody ever says God changed his mind. They just find fault with you and go somewhere else and blame it on God. Have you all seen that before? Yes. Everybody has. Have you ever done it before? Mm-hmm. I bet we have. I bet we have. And in His mercy, He brought us right back around that mountain again. But the same pattern occurs. We're confronted with biblical, absolute truth from the throne. And there's only one way to take that bite. You have to empty yourself first. So listen to what Jesus said to teach you. Now, by the way, if you were a road scholar, right? No, you... you, you uh, you spend your, your evenings teaching at, at Yale uh, on the doctorate level. And then you come to talk to me, and I'm going to share with you profound wisdom. And I say, <clears throat> Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. <laughs> no, wait, you haven't heard the best part. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Are you hanging on the edge of your seat here the next word? What are you thinking? Who's this guy think he's talking to? (laughs) Jesus is going to pick a very well-known story from Israel's past to be the culmination of his teaching to Nicodemus. You ready for it? Yeah. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. My goodness, this must have been difficult. What are you talking about, Jesus? I'm very, very familiar with the fact that the people of God grumbled against God. They didn't like the path that they were walking on in the book of Numbers. They didn't think that it was fast enough or had enough water or brought them into their inheritance quick enough. And as a response, snakes came and were biting them. And Jesus, I'm very well aware of what the remedy was for them. We made a serpent. We put it on a pole. They were bronze. And anybody who looked at it was healed. Jesus, what is it that you're saying? And the truth was obscured from him. He was not talking about Israel's past. He was talking about Nicodemus' present state. Mm. You already have God's path planned. You already have it all worked out. The problem is God wants to take you down a different road. You're being devoured by a snake and do not know it. How excited would you be to hear that? You're being devoured by a snake and do not know it. Might you think something like, Who are you to tell me that? Who are you to judge my heart? I heard all of those things a bunch of times. 
being devoured by a snake. Huh. Let's go ahead and go to Numbers. Be in Numbers 21. compare yourself to something sinful, something unclean, something generally considered despised and dirty for someone else's benefit. I mean, how many stories do you hear where the sharer of the story is something other than the hero? When's the last time somebody was sitting around telling you a story about their athletic career that was embarrassing? When's the last time you saw a father kneel beside his little boy and say, yes, that's how you carry a football. You carry it just like that. Because when I was a kid, I was, I was the kid on the football team that couldn't carry it right. In fact, they all gave me wedgies and tried to <laughs> shove Kramer's atomic bomb analgesic cream in my armpits. You don't hear that, do you? What do you hear? Yeah, well, you want to raise your knees. You want to carry the football right. When I was your age, I did these things, right? We never put ourselves in a negative light because we're very image conscious. What did Jesus say He had to be lifted up? The Son of Man. And what is He likening Himself to? A snake. A snake that represented what? Sin. Sin and judgment. Was Jesus just telling Nicodemus he was being eaten by snakes? He's also saying, and everyone's going to look at me as a symbol of sin and judgment. But it's okay, because when that happens, when I'm lifted up, is when you who are being eaten by snakes begin your healing process. I'm curious, how do you bring the healing process to people? Is it when they see you as a hero and a savior? Or might you need to be in their eyes, an object of scorn for a while. <laughs> are you the kind of person that learns just because, I mean, you get profound truth because things are pleasant and you feel rewarded? Mm -hmm. Are you the kind of person that learns because you found 12 ways it wouldn't work and it was embarrassing and humbling, and so now you found the one way it did work? See, I believe that most of the time when people are going to learn something, it comes through confrontation that requires a person to humble themselves. Maybe you've been in our ministry a while. You've seen that, huh? Yeah. We've all seen this. You know how I learned every major revelation that I share with you guys? Somebody challenged it. Somebody challenged it. The kingdom of God coming to the earth, not being us flying to some other planet called heaven. You know how I learned that? Somebody challenged it. Gosh darn it, it was right after I bought my parents a beautiful... A painting of a church closed due to rapture. I was very proud of it. <laughs> like, what do you mean that doctrine came about in 1830? It required humility just to learn because it meant I was wrong. And not only was I wrong, I was badly wrong. I've been a champion voice for something that was not true. Real revelation comes that way. When you hear revelation comes as, oh, you had everything great, 99% right, and here's 1% that we want to add to it. Well, why doesn't God just consult you with how to save the world? <laughs> why, by the way, does He send missionaries from one continent to another? Could anything be more humbling than somebody from a different culture, half the time a different color, coming all the way across the ocean to a place they've never been and say, everything y'all are doing is wrong? And here's how God would like you to do it. Could anything in the world be more humbling than that? How many of you like it when a stranger comes into your house and tells you that you're not raising your kids right and the food you're serving them is not good? How many of you like it when your own parents come and tell you that about your kids? See, we don't do well with this kind of stuff. We are not naturally inclined to the gospel. It requires a new birth and a new heart. Are you all in the they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea, verse 4, to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. Anybody in here ever been impatient with God's way? Yes. I think I heard a prophecy about that this morning. <laughs> a fruit of the Spirit, long-suffering, gentleness, 
And aren't they really the same thing? Gentleness and long-suffering, they're at the very least brothers. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. We detest this. What was miserable food? Manna. Manna. Really? But manna bread. Who wouldn't like that? What is miserable about it? Well, they have to go out and gather it each day. It can't be stored. They have to depend upon God for it. Oh, like a child waits for his mother to feed every day. What was miserable about it? Was it not good? No, when they ate it, they said, man, it's like coriander seed mixed with wafers of honey. They liked it. So what was miserable about it? God's dispensing program. God's will for your life is never miserable, but the way in which you have to find out about it, the way in which you have to depend upon Him and you're unable to plan ten moves ahead, that can be very difficult, huh? They called God's method of feeding them miserable. You know what the number one thing talked about in most churches immediately after the service over lunch is? <laughs> miserable food. Not the food they're eating. It's that they don't like. Well, I just don't know why he shares it that way. Did you hear sister so-and-so saying, who does she think she is? These are the conversations that are occurring after church most of the time. Consuming more pastor than fried chicken. Why? Because in our hearts, we actually resent somebody else telling us what and how we should do it. Because we would like to be gods to ourselves. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the, the verse that says, every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift proceeds or flows or comes from our Heavenly Father. Every good and perfect gift. Who wants a venomous snake? How about this one in the creation story, right? Cursed is the ground for your sake. Oh, goody! Thanks. Thorns? Thistles? Cockroaches? You kidding? Why is this a good gift? Because now they had something outward to show them their inward state. I would like to tell you that the position Jesus is putting Nicodemus in is a conversation on the outside that is showing him the condition of his insides. And you're not any different than Nicodemus. And if I'm not any different than Nicodemus, we're pretty darn sure we're fine just like we are. God sent venomous snakes on the outside of them so they could see that they were being poisoned on the inside. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. What was magical about this? <laughs> Nothing. Not a thing in the world. He, he actually could have said, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to put a big clown nose on and draw a picture of a snake on the crown nose, clown nose and anybody who looks at it, they'll be healed. He could have said, Moses, here's what I'd like you to do. Go stand on your head on top of the rock that's been giving everybody water and when people come and rub your belly, everybody will be healed. There is no specific healing property to putting a snake on a pole. Isn't it interesting, though, that most of our medical community has chosen this exact symbol for healing? Judeo-Christian society. Huh? I don't even know what it means anymore. Anybody got Blue Cross Blue Shield in there? Look at it. Look at it close. Take his name off of everything, but you cannot get him out of us because every good thing we have came from him. Amen. What is healing about putting a snake on a pole? Not a thing in the world. In fact, I challenge you to do it. <laughs> Go kill a snake, put it on your mom's stick, stare at it all day long. 
It might make you feel good to kill a snake. But there is no intrinsic value to it. Have you noticed that the world runs after crazy things? Yeah. You know there are churches you can go to in Italy where there's an actual heart of somebody that has been dead for more than a thousand years that was a saint. And this relic, this relic was so holy that we could build the whole church on it. John Calvin said that there were not pieces of the cross floating around to build Noah's Ark. He <laughs> did. You can go places today. You've seen the documentaries on the Shroud of Turin. There was a movie, I, it, was, it had Victor Mature in it, and it was called The Robe. It was the robe that Jesus wore. And when the robe was brought in the room, it was, oh! <laughs> and if the robe touched you, saved! <laughs> We're always looking in the wrong places, just like Nicodemus going, really, I need to go back and incubate your mama again? And we're missing the point. The circumstances that you're in most of the time, in themselves, are just circumstances. God is after one thing in you. And the question then becomes, what healed these people? Was it the snake? Was it the pole? Was it Moses? You say, no, Eric, God healed these people. Well, he could have done that without a snake or a pole. What healed the people? I would say the trust or faith that they expressed when they became obedient and did what God said. Amen. The miracle of the cross is not that a man died. The miracle of the cross is that when you, through trust, become obedient to that man, you did even though you died. Trust grounded obedience is the goal of our faith. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been tempted if I could just get to, let's just say Benny Hinn, I'd get healed? Have you ever had the thought that, I don't know, if I could just have been in such and such service, everything would be great? Really? Is it the place? Is it the serpent and the pole that heals us? It is trust-grounded obedience. When our church first started, there were women speaking in the kitchen about a revival that was going on 18 hours from here, and they were discussing maybe getting in the car and going to the revival. Now, not only as a pastor did I feel like somebody was talking about, you know, a mistress or something. I mean, it just felt strange to me. But I couldn't help it. I changed the entire message that day, and I said, if you're willing to get into a car and drive 18 hours to a revival, don't you think if you put that same trust-grounded, passionate obedience into where God has actually called you, you might receive the same thing? Amen. But we're kind of sure that there must be something magical about these inanimate objects. In fact, for 1,500 years, people took pilgrimages to go see things that are not really holy at all. How about some linen from Mary's veil? There, there's one. You, you, you can buy them on the internet. Linen. From Mary's faith. We can all agree that there's nothing holy about this snake or this pole, right? What if we moved to if you had Jesus' actual cross in your backyard? I'm persuaded it's just a very old truth. How about the names that actually went through his hand? How about the shroud that covered him? How about drops of his actual blood? None of those things are anything more than materials. They're just matter arranged in different ways. But trust-grounded obedience is something that is supernaturally born of God. This is the birth that the church needs. Turn with me to 2 Kings 18. There. Anybody ever been in a town where they sold anointed prayer cloths? Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, Paul did it. Paul prayed over aprons and handkerchiefs and people got healed. Really? You think it was the I mean it was the handkerchief? It was it was the apron? 
or it was the people who trusted God enough to believe that if they were just obedient, no matter how silly it was, they would be healed. In the third year of Hoshea, by the way, when, when did the Exodus take place? When did the wanderings take place? 15th, 16th century BC? Or you might say, let's say mid 1400s. Is that fair? Did we say that? Somewhere between 1499 and 1401, uh, the wanderings are taking place. I mean, would y'all argue with me about that? Yeah. Okay. Anybody know when Hezekiah reigned? Hezekiah, he's a popular king. <laughs> Hezekiah's in the mid 700s. So if we just rounded this off from 1400 to 700, and it's actually longer than that, but if we rounded that off, 1400 and 700, one of you guys much smarter than me do that math. How many years are between those? 700 years. How long has our country been around? 200. Anybody in here got George Washington's toenail or something? <laughs> no? Uh, I mean, nobody in here has got some relic that you're now getting embarrassed about, do you? <laughs> I mean, how old does something have to be before we think it's useless? Think about that. I mean, do you throw away food that is one day old? No. A week old? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Two weeks old? Three months old? Really? Peanut butter? Anybody in here got any 300-year-old food in their house? If you do, I hope it's a bottle. And a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> How old does something have to be before it's useless to you? Have you ever considered the fact that what our denominations are is yesterday's Poland's name? Have you ever considered the fact that what Wesley did for God was amazing for Wesley? But we live two centuries from that time, and there might be your turn. Have you ever considered the fact that maybe the Anabaptists had some things that were cool in their lives, but it was for their particular place? Why is it that we cling to what worked hundreds of years ago and demand that interpretation for today. Let me ask you something. What was it that was so uh, difficult about Nicodemus? His zeal for God had caused him to define what God would and wouldn't do in some pretty rigid ways. It made it very difficult for him with the idea that he needed to start again. He needed to think about God in a whole new way. All of his great learning that had been passed down to him from century after century after century actually did not benefit him any more than it did Paul. But he had to humble himself and start again, counting everything before as rubbish and of no profit to him. Because what mattered was what God was asking of him today. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. I'm just curious. Hezekiah. Um, somebody here's got a kid named Josiah. Right? It's the Molochs. Hey, yeah. Uh, what happened in Josiah's reign? What did they find that was special? They found something in Josiah's reign. The book of the law. Well, Abu, you didn't have the book? No, I didn't have the book. Your daddy didn't have the book? No, we didn't know where the book was, but I found the book. Josiah before or after Hezekiah? Oh, turn four chapters to your right and you find Josiah. So they're going to find the book of the law four chapters from this one. But guess what they've been hanging on to for 700 years. Hmm. He was 25 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehustan. Because God did something special in the desert as the result of their sin, and He rescued them, 
They dishonored God by making that an idol and worshiping it for 700 years. Let me ask you, is it really any different? When we take the framework that God used 200 years ago and say it must be that way right now, is it really any different if we pick any great move of God and say, if you want to have a move of God now, it must look identical to this. You know, in Judaism, there is a group of people called the uh, Hasidic Jews. And i got to tell you, I love these guys. They are as zealous as all get out. You can recognize them because they are still dressing in what men wore in Europe in the 17th century. You know why? It was a great reform. There's a great reform during that time. And men today admire those men. And they want to pattern their lives after the way they walked with God. Right down to their dress. But how odd is it to see a man dressed in 17th century clothes walking around today? Mm. You know what the Christian version of that is? The Amish. Is it admirable? Yes, it's admirable. Thank you. Awesome zeal. Is it reaching the world? Why are we always clinging to yesterday's job? When do we have an obligation to humble ourselves and go, okay, whatever we've inherited, whatever we've known, whatever our predetermined framework is, it may be wrong. Lord, would you just teach me personally today how I'm supposed to relate to you. Could I learn to live on that like a baby lives on food proceeding from the mouth of their parents? Do you remember that scripture? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The truth is we're still living on 700-year-old bread regularly. When do you have an obligation to go out and gather your own manna, or is it miserable food too? because you have to go gather it. You would rather eat something that someone else gathered. I want you to understand, I admire the people that have gone before us. William Booth is a pretty amazing guy. John Wesley, an amazing guy. Gordon Lindsay, John Coke. Oh, those, those are amazing people. William Brandon, A.A. Allen. I love all those guys. Don't love everything about them. I think they were amazing people. What does that do for you? If it inspires you, and you say, okay, well, I can do this too. Well, praise God. But if what we've decided, there are actually churches called Branhamite temples. Really? I don't think Branham would have liked that. John Wesley rebuked men for taking titles in the Methodist church. Pretty sure all the Methodist pastors have those titles now. He said he'd rather be slandered than have a title bishop conveyed upon him. How funny that that's a title that exists in the Methodist church today. By the way, Nehustan, you know what it means? Snake, unclean, or bronze. Hezekiah called it something. He named it something. This is yesterday's bread, friends. It's unclean. It's a symbol of judgment. It's to be broken into pieces and thrown out. Not because it wasn't good in Moses' day. It was for the people then. But Hezekiah began a whole new series of reforms for his day and his time and his people. How many of you think the Reformation was a good idea? Two people in here think the Reformation? Why are y'all in Protestant churches? <laughs> The Pope will take you. You can run back, eat Jesus, and live forever. <laughs> You're in here, I assume, because you agree with some of the basic tenets of the Reformation. What happens when we need another Reformation? A Reformation for our day. A Reformation that says, I have an obligation not to cling to a seven-year-old-hundred-old-year relic. But I have an obligation through trust-grounded obedience do whatever my God would tell me to do the same way they did. Don't you think that this could reinvent 
a truly authentic Christianity? Mm -hmm. By the way, who was Jesus patterning himself after when he hopped up a loogie and spit it in dirt and made an eyeball? Nobody. That's brand new ground. You can find that. <laughs> who is he patterning himself after when he took a whip and drove people out of the temple? I believe twice. when he calls Lazarus out of the tomb after four days. Who is he patterning himself after? Nobody. When he heals lepers in Israel, whoever did that? I said, well, wait, wait, there was Naaman. No, he was a Syrian. Who healed this raid in lepers? Nobody. Ever. It is our job to hear from God and do what has never been done before, or you can sit around and burn incense to some old ridiculous make on a pole that meant something about people's faith and obedience then, and it's become nothing more than, I don't know, a crucifix now. Crucifix most useful implementation is in a vampire movie. <laughs> I'm being honest. This is a relic means nothing to have an image of the Savior on a cross. It means everything. So with all of your heart, do whatever that Savior tells you to do. But in our day, icons of yesteryear rule the church rather than the obedience of the faithful now. Even in our spirit-filled denominations, what started as the assemblies experience, whatever it was, is beginning to look like a relic of yesteryear. And the question is, where are the William Seymour's now? Where are the men and women who changed Christianity and the face of the world in their day? Where are they now? And I think that we're like Nicodemus sometimes. We have to humble ourselves and go, okay, our job is to walk in daddy or granddaddy's boots. Our job is to be the men and women God has called us to be now. And it starts by starting all over again. But it's hard. Yeah. Y'all want to eat? Yes. <laughs> Y'all stick at your feet and build? Do you have something, Natalie? Do you have something? I was going to ask you to repeat. I thought of yesteryear fill the church instead of... Trust ground is obedience in the saints of God today. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> no, there's not one note of you. I have the word Nehustan. <laughs> Just like you. I admire love and excited to hear about the work of God through the centuries and especially going on in the globe right now. But I have the same question every time I have ever come home from a powerful meeting done somewhere else. Okay, Lord, what does that mean for us now? And our day Brownsville has been an amazing thing, hasn't it? Maybe Bay of the Holy Spirit going on right now, an amazing thing. What about you? What about Sugar Lake? What about right now? What about Arkansas? What about where God has planted you? Are we simply going to be content to sit back and look at somebody else's relic? Sometimes I think God raises up a righteous king has kind of a rebellious attitude towards the things of this world. And he'll break that stuff to pieces point out how archaic and ridiculous it is. It's like jousting in your grandfather's armor instead of carrying an M16. It is time, saints. We're doing everything we can to raise up leaders in this church who are not dependent upon us, not dependent upon anybody except the Holy Ghost, and they believe anything can be done in His name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to join us in that. I really am. And so, if we're not in this building, I don't know where we'll be, but it'd be good. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Because we have not built our lives around a building. 
You go tear down one of these, you go tear down some building somewhere, see who shows up the next Sunday. I kind of believe that if we had to meet in the parking lot, every single person would still be here. Amen. Even in the rain. Been there and done it. Not very many of us left from that group, though. We want to eat. Bless the food. Maybe pray close to service. Let the anointing loose upon these people. Pray God reinvent us all. We might be world changers for you. Father God, we just praise you for who you are and for what you're doing in our lives, Jesus. And we just pray that, Lord, we wouldn't hold it in our pockets. We wouldn't hold on to the good seed that you've poured into us, Jesus. That we would, Lord, we would take it everywhere we go, Jesus. And that your testimony would come out of our mouths, Father God. And that people's lives, Lord, our lives would be changed for that testimony, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for this word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to apply it to our lives today, Jesus. Lord, show us what we're holding on to that we don't need, Father. Show us what we're holding on to instead of you, Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that you would bring people into this place according to your perfect will, Father, and that the gospel would grow in this place, in this church, in this body, and in this city, Lord Jesus. We praise you for the food, Father. We praise you for the fellowship. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.